Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. Why choose a Sleep Number Smart Bed? Can I make my side softer? Can I make my side firmer? Whenever I want? Can, Can we, we sleep, sleep cooler? Sleep Number does that. Cools up to eight times faster and lets you choose your ideal comfort on either side. 94% of Sleep Number smart sleepers report better sleep. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. To find a store near you, visit sleepnumber.com. You know the saying, if you put good in, you get good out? Well, in meteorology, if you put good data in, you'll get good forecasts. But what about areas that don't have good data to go into the models, specifically good radar data? Some areas just aren't adequately covered and lie in what's called radar gaps or Doppler dead zones. This makes researching and forecasting severe weather in these areas much more difficult. One way to alleviate this issue is to install more high-resolution radars, and that's exactly what my guest company is doing. I'm joined today by Chris Good, the founder and CEO of Climavision, to talk about what they're up to in this space. Chris, thank you for joining us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Great to be here, Marshall. Appreciate the opportunity to talk with you today. Well, you know, I've been following what you're up to, and so wanted to have you on the show. But before we get into all of that, I have to ask you the question I ask every Weather Geeks guest. How did you become a Weather Geek? Yeah, so it started at a really young age for me, Marshall. Uh, I, I had a, always had an interest in aviation, and I started to, to learn how to fly at the age of 14. Uh, so before I ever grabbed a steering wheel of a car, I was uh, flying a Cessna 152. And it was through that experience and being exposed to different situations uh, and weather that I started to, to grow a, a healthy awareness, number one, but also a fear to some extent, right? Because if you're in a small aircraft like that, even the smallest of weather events can have a dramatic impact on you. So that's how it all started. And then I ultimately moved into forecasting in the Air Force before I joined the commercial sector um, back in the mid-90s, actually with the Weather Channel companies. You know, it's interesting because I recall a colleague of mine at, at NASA Goddard saying, if you're a mariner or a pilot, you really need to have a passionate understanding of the weather because your life will depend on it in some regards. No so question. You resonate with that. Let me give uh, you all a bit of the background. Uh, Climavision is a company that I recently became aware of uh, because you know, they are trying to do something that is a challenge and a problem in the world of weather. I mean, one of the key tools that we use at the mesoscale, and that's a geeky term, and we can throw geeky terms around on this podcast. Uh, the mesoscale is really this scale of weather that happens on, you know, from a, you know, perhaps a few hours out to a day or so, uh, thunderstorms, tornadic storms, hailstorms, and so forth. And radar is typically the tool of the mesoscale, but there are gaps. We have a really good National Weather Service network, but there are gaps there. And there's we've known about some of these gaps for some time. So, Chris, you know, before we get into climate vision, tell I mean, you mentioned your background. You mentioned that you were at the the um, the Air Force and so forth. Then the perhaps even the weather companies. How did you kind of land climate vision, or in terms, you're the founder and CEO. So how did that sort of evolve? 
Well, the journey uh, was a long one for me, Marshall. I, again, my my experience in the industry dates back 30 years. Uh, and it was through that experience, though, that I start to gain an appreciation from different positions in the industry um, for the value of observation. So I did mention I was with a company called WSI, Weather Services International, that ultimately became part of the Weather Channel companies. And in that role, I started working with different media outlets in a in more of a real-time emphasis on the component of weather radar because it's so impactful to when you have a developing storm or mesocyclone, as you, as you mentioned, um, radar data is the most important tool in that scenario because you're getting real-time information second by second. And then as I moved throughout my career, different executive positions, I actually worked for a company that was called AirDAT. Uh, at AirDAT, we actually fielded one of the first airborne networks, we actually put instrumentation on commercial aircraft that collected information in the planetary boundary layer, which, of course, is so important when you're assimilating information into forecast models. And then my last stop was CEO of a weather radar manufacturing company where we were building radars of all different sorts and installing them all over the world for, for different countries and governments. And it was through that last experience that I gained an appreciation for the mechanical electro electromagnetic aspects of what we do with radar. And it was through that, as we were developing these networks, we were deploying them in some sophisticated countries, very well developed, like Germany, Sweden, South Korea, but in some other countries that weren't as developed, there were challenges. The challenges happened after we left, and it was about the maintenance and the upkeep of that equipment. They weren't as well situated to, to undertake those types of tasks. So I began to think about radar as a service, because in many instances, the people and entities that are using this information, they may not have the core competencies necessary to, to provide the care and feeding and maintenance of a radar, but they're very interested in the data output. So in part, what we're doing at ClimaVision is, yes, filling some important gaps and observations here in the U.S. But as we move forward, looking at other areas across the globe that have far more acute problems with data gaps than we even have here in the U.S., but we can deploy these radars and take on the burden and the upkeep of them and then monetize the investments in those systems through subscription services. So let me give you a little bit, as I like to do with all our guests, a little bit of Chris's background. He's, he shared some of it, but he has a, a bachelor's degree from journalism from the University of Montana. Uh, he, he did serve as chief executive for um, EEC for some time, also spent some time at the weather companies, which was acquired by IBM and is a certified Air Force aviation weather operations specialist as well, and has received the meritorious service medal. So sort of distinguished career and certainly someone that um, we've wanted to talk to. Now, before we get into your radars, because I know you're deploying small, high-resolution radars around, but I want to give the listeners, because again, the listeners are of Weather Geeks and the viewers of Weather Geeks have a range of backgrounds. Some may not understand radar. So let's start with X-band, C-band, and S-band. Uh, I think many people watch and look at the radar on their phones or perhaps on the evening news. And what you're likely looking at with those radars are something called S-band radars, if you will. 
or even in some cases, perhaps a C-band radar at some television stations as well. Give the listeners a sort of 101 on what we are talking about when we talk about S-band, C-band, X-band, because I think your radar systems primarily operate in the X-band. Is that correct? That's right. And, and you're, you're absolutely correct, Marshall. There's essentially three flavors of weather radars, and that's X, C, and S. And each of those frequencies where weather radars operate have a set of, of capabilities, and there's obviously trade-offs when you go to different types of technologies. So the U.S. NEXRAD network, all of those radars are S-band radars. And I guess, yeah. That's right. And they're, they're most effective at long-range coverage, which makes a lot of sense. When, when NEXRAD was being designed and developed and then subsequently deployed, the entire mission, of course, was around public safety and being able to cover as much population as you could with a particular asset or sensor. So the S-band is very good. Um, the, what we're doing at X-band and the trade-offs we have there are X-band is a perfect gap-filling technique because you are actually trading off the long-range effectiveness, if you will, because you're at a shorter wavelength. The, the, the upside is operating in an X-band, you get 10 times the resolution of the data that you get at S-band. Now, the downside is, is that X-band is more uh, prone to what's called attenuation. So as the beam of energy moves through the atmosphere, whatever it's colliding with can tend to bend that beam, which of course is a negative impact. But because we're focused on the gap filling ability here, the trade-off makes sense, and that increase in resolution can lend itself to far better predictions and observations as it relates to QPE or quantitative precipitation estimation. And having that additional resolution allows us to see things in the atmosphere that you can't always detect with S-band. And again, it's complementary. Um, none of these systems are silver bullets, but when you supplement and complement the observations, that's when you unlock the full potential of the observation network. And, and that's what we're looking to do. We're not looking to duplicate any of the coverage that the S-band network provides. It, as you mentioned, it's a solid network, but it does have these blind spots that we're looking to fill in and round out, if you will, from a total picture perspective. So in the X-band radar is operated around Three. So just a little sort of radar 101 here for the listeners and viewers. Uh, essentially, a radar operates by it's an what we call an active remote sensor. It sends out pulses of microwave energy. And the, as you heard Chris say, the S-band sends out uh, pulses at about 10 centimeter wavelength. His X-band systems are operating around three centimeters and the terminal Doppler radars that you might have at around airports are operating primarily in C-band around five centimeter. And you're right, there are these trade-offs. You heard him talk about attenuation. If any of you've ever had satellite television in the past, uh, if it rains too hard, you get a rain fade or rain, rain attenuation. It's a similar phenomenon, although some of that has really gotten better because I actually have one of those surfaces. Um, X-Band is, uh, again, we a trade-off. We actually own an X-Band system now at the University of Georgia in connection with Georgia Tech. And so looking forward to talking with you more. Now, when we come back, Chris, I want to really dig into what you're up to and what your progress is so far after this first break. Sounds good. 
That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. I'm speaking with Chris Good, the founder and CEO of Climavision. And he's talking about a network of gap-filling radars that are merging around the country. Now, as, as we were talking before we came on, you already have these up and, uh, and operating around the country. Tell us about your status. We do, Marshall. Uh, the company launched in June of 21, but we had a head start on the siding. Uh, and the locations where we would be placing these systems. So we're really moving in a clip right now of two to three radar installations per month. Uh, at the moment, we have 20 installed and in the field. Uh, predominantly, these early systems have been across our phase one area, which stems from the Atlantic seaboard from North Carolina, all the way to the south central part of the country into West Texas. Um, obviously, this part of the country is prone to a lot of different types of impactful weather year round. Um, so we started with the deployment uh, in this particular area. But as I mentioned, we're two to three systems per month, all the way uh, through a, a progressive kind of rollout where we expect to have 200 radars across the country by uh, the end of 2025. So really, really good progress. Now, I know that there might be some maybe I don't want to say critics, but maybe some skeptics out there that say, You've got this nice coverage. I mean, you're a private venture, you're a private company. Um, how are you going to disseminate this data? How are you going to get it in the hands of, you know, operational entities like the National Weather Service or others? Or are you planning to have your own sort of private venture in the forecasting world? I, I know that people have those kinds of questions. I also know you have a partnership with the National Severe Storms Lab, which is the premier uh, government agency charged with developing our radars. They developed our Doppler radar system, our dual polarimetric radar system, and are now working on the next generation phased array systems as well. So tell us about those that may have questions about your dissemination strategy and also about your partnership with NSSL. Sure. Yeah. From inception, we started working with NSSL um, on data quality, um, aspects of it. How do we move this data around? You're talking about massive quantities of data, especially at full scale at 200 systems. So early on, we started working with the team at NSSL to start to architect the types of things that you would need in order for this data to be effectively used within NOAA and the National Weather Service. And, and great news on uh, the dissemination front. We're actually providing access to NOAA and the National Weather Service as of September 7th. So oh, wow. we're just about a month in and the eastern region as well as the southern region is already looking and, and, and utilizing climate vision data in their operations. So can the casual viewer, I mean, again, that's very important. That's in fact some breaking news from my end for frankly that uh, since September, your data is accessible by the National Weather Service. I think that's key and critical. Uh, I know many avid enthusiasts or even people like me that use various radar apps out there can pull up various radars. Are you in any of those radar apps yet? So at the moment, no, but okay. we are working on different partnerships that will allow access for 
for the weather geeks of the world, right? Um, like us out there who want to to look in on this new data set, you've got a number of storm chasers and things like that that would like to see this increase in coverage and, and, and need that information as well. So we're working on that. We are primarily a B2B business. So you won't see a ClimaVision app in the near term uh, as it relates to something that you can get on your phone, but we will work with channel partners to deliver this information to those particular sectors. Yeah, business to business is critical, and that's that's certainly fine. We have various layers of of, of stakeholders and providers within the weather enterprise, and so I, I think that this is a really emerging example of new business opportunity within the field. Uh, I I wanted to sort of talk a little bit more about your radar. You did mention that they're expand, but I'm I, I'm guessing that these days they also have the typical Doppler and polarimetric capabilities Absolutely. as well. Talk, talk a little bit about for our listeners that may not know what Doppler and polarimetric capabilities bring to the table in radar. Sure, sure. So absolutely, all of these systems are both Doppler and, and dual polarimetric. All right. So we are sending out energy in both the X and Y axis. And usually when I talk to people about the benefits of that, I think of uh, cross sites, perhaps uh, crosshairs on a rifle, right? And you're sending out that energy and that type of orientation. And what that allows you to do then is you strike things in the atmosphere, whether it's a raindrop, a snowflake, hail, all of those objects in the atmosphere, you're able to decipher with dual polarimetric radars. And also more importantly, uh, you're actually you're able to, to, to detect whether or not these objects are naturally found in the atmosphere. And by that, I mean, at night, when people are most susceptible to tornadoes and convective weather, when you can't see at distances, these radars can help you identify when you have a tornado on the ground, because there are things that are pulled up into the atmosphere vertically that are not naturally found there. Sticks, uh, different types of debris that can be pulled up. And when we see that with these radars, we're able to to verify the fact that there is a tornado on the ground. And that is a big capability that these types of radars provide, again, especially at night when people are most vulnerable. Yeah, talking with Chris Good from Climate Vision about uh, his emerging network of gap-filling small X-band Doppler radars. Uh, I, I, I had seen some work in the past, and I even wrote a little bit about this in a Forbes article in the past about even some of that phase one or phase A region that you talked about, the southeast uh, some of the gaps that may be there, we know that the Southeast is increasingly vulnerable to tornadic storms because work Absolutely. by Victor Gensini and Harold Brooks has shown us that the frequency of tornadic storms is sort of shifting into the South. There are also highly vulnerable populations in the Southeast as well right. um, from the standpoint of socioeconomic vulnerability, mobile homes, manufacturing mm-hmm. homes. Talk a little bit about just how you see uh, what you're doing addressing that challenge. It's a big component of what we're doing, Marshall. I, I know that you had written uh, a couple of years back about underserved communities, especially across the South. Um, there are more susceptible areas because of manufactured homes and things of this nature. And you also have in tandem with the shifting of Tornado Alley, which again, a lot of study has been done on that recently. And it is clear we are seeing far more tornadic activity across the South that was originally or historically more centered on Oklahoma and Kansas. So that shift has made even, it's put more impetus behind solving this problem of gaps. Um, When you have large tornadoes, 
uh, EF3, 4.5s, those are typically high enough in the atmosphere where these gaps um, aren't creating as much of a problem. But when you have EF1s, EF2s, these are the types of tornadoes that, while can, can really cause substantial damage, are often missed by the existing network. Yeah. So by filling in these gaps, we can be far more proficient in, in covering these types of breaking weather scenarios and detecting it with radar. Yeah, what, you know, one of, I, I cut my teeth, my doctoral work at Florida State University was on convective storms in Florida. And one of the things I know about tornadic storms in Florida is that they are often are not these uh, mesocyclone supercell driven tornadoes. They typically are EF0, EF1s that or what we call almost like land spouts. They stretch up from the ground as opposed to sort of come spinning down out of these large supercell cyclones, uh, water spouts as well. So I, I'm curious uh, in, in your phasing and rollout, I mean, are you in Florida now? Because it's, it would seem to me that these X-band type systems would be ideal for those types of like smaller tornadic systems that can still create, cause havoc. Oh, and by the way, also, as you well know, they spin out of these landfalling hurricanes as well out in the rain bands, and they're often EF1s or so, EF2s on the lower end of the category. So um, I, I certainly understand sort of why you're rolling out in the southeast because of the things that you mentioned. But um, what are your thoughts on the capabilities for things like these land spout, water spout type systems in Florida or these land or hurricane generated tornadoes? You're absolutely right about that and those types of systems that spin up in Florida. We don't have systems operating in Florida yet, but we will. It's part of our phase one rollout. We do have systems, though, deployed across South Georgia uh, and also across Louisiana. And we've already started to pick up, even in the short time that they've been up and running, we've already picked up some specific events that were undetected by the existing network, but because we're focused on these lower levels, we've seen them. In fact, um, outside of phase one, we have a couple of radars that we've deployed, uh, one being up at Millersville University up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And there was a tornado that spun up this, this past summer here in July, where we, again, our beam height in that particular area where the tornado developed was about 700 feet above ground level, where the nearest next rad was over 6,000 feet. Right. And it missed a, a developing tornado. So already uh, a, a case study um, in a very short period of time where that system has been up and running, where, again, the, the complementary nature of what we're doing, supplemental radars in tandem with the government systems that are already out there, already showed value. Um, and I expect to see more and more of that. We've covered a lot of the gaps that have had a lot of publicity over the past couple of decades, one being across the Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, Winston-Salem, Greensboro area. That was the area where we first rolled out these systems. We actually have three radars covering um, that particular region of the Piedmont there in North Carolina. So when we come back, I'm going to ask Chris the big question. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. I'm speaking with Chris Good from Climavision. And this is just a geek out right up my alley because my master's degree work at Florida State uh, back in the day, <laughs> early 90s, uh, we had access to some of the first NEXRAD Doppler radar data, my, my doctoral advisor at, at the university. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. 
I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. I uh, was under contract with, I guess at that time, Unisys. and worked with a guy named Les Lemon, who you may know. And we developed some of the early NEXRAD algorithms for tropical cyclone detection and, and identification of things like uh, eyes and so forth. So I, I'm at, at heart, I cut my teeth as a graduate, early graduate student on radar meteorology. And I, I still to this day teach, teach the radar meteorology course at the University of Georgia. So this is a prime geek out today on Weather Geeks. And I really appreciate Chris joining us. We've, we've heard a lot about what you're up to. Are you engaged, Chris, in ClimaVision in any other activities beyond sort of radar deployment? Are you sort of expanding your your your, your business to business model in any ways? Or are you sort of staying laser focused on radar right now? No doubt that the the supplemental radar network is is a main component of the business, but we're also when you think about the full value chain of of weather forecasting, weather detection. We're involved in all of those areas. So we also have a very sophisticated modeling system that we've set up that can harness these new observations that we're bringing in, the radars being one of them, but also is aggregating all of the public provision data that's always been out there. And it's a key differentiator, though, because I often get the question, why ClimaVision? Why now? And for me, there's three drivers for why we need better weather information, better forecasts. And, and those primary drivers are the changing climate itself because of the increase in the volatility and the frequency of events that are happening that are very impactful to both us in the public, but also businesses. We, we needed a new approach. This is a renaissance period, I think, in, in weather forecasting and meteorology because we're starting to unlock the value of additional observations. Those can be in the form of radars. Those can be in the form of low earth orbiting satellites um, where we're pulling in different data from different partners in that arena. But all of that now is being aggregated in our numerical weather prediction system, our forecast models. Uh, our, one of our core thesis behind starting ClimaVision was that the public pr provision data was just no longer sufficient because of all of these new drivers and needs for better weather information. So we're looking to enrich the global data sets that fuel our models to provide better outputs. I think the other thing that's really driving an increase in appetite and the need for better weather forecasts is the energy transition. We're efforting to transition to renewable forms of energy for, for the most part are derived from weather, whether it's wind, solar, or hydro. So you need better modeling uh, in, in order to understand the availability of those resources. And then I think the third driver is the emergence of advanced aerial mobility or, or drones and, and the different services that are being developed around those. All of those aircraft are flying at the lowest altitudes of the atmosphere where we have the most problematic uh, instances of a lack of observations or these low atmospheric gaps. So those for me were the big drivers. And we're obviously servicing businesses across the spectrum uh, of those particular areas in energy, transportation, agriculture, uh, and also in, when you look at the insurance arena, there's another sector where 
the increase in both the data that we're collecting and, of course, the downstream forecast is becoming ever more important because they can't rely on the historics like they used to because those historical records, because of the changing climate, are no longer a reliable uh, view as to what will happen in the future. Talking with Chris Good, and I want to mention that we focused on tornadoes quite a bit, but one of the things that radar is really good for, particularly X-band as well, and dual polarimetric radar is rain, rain estimation, rain quantification as well. You mentioned QPE earlier, quantitative precipitation estimation, and that's one of the sort of most significant signals of climate impact on today's weather and the rainfall intensity. Uh, there's still a little bit of you know question about the in terms of the consensus on tornadic activity and climate change, although it's starting to emerge. Uh, but certainly one of the areas where we have a clear signal is in the intensity of rainfall. Uh, and I, I think that that's an area, as we're seeing more intense flooding in urban and rural areas, uh, that these radars could certainly be of, of value as well. Chris, where can people follow you on social media, your company, or on the web that they can just find out more about what you're up to or perhaps even see your network? Uh, absolutely. Easy to find. So our website is climavision.com, but we're also on LinkedIn and, of course, uh, I guess what used to be known as Twitter, now X. Um, and formally, so we're formerly Twitter, now X, yes. <laughs> so we're posting on all of those platforms, um, both updates on our network and where we're rolling out, but we're also showing use cases for the different information that we're collecting. So. Um, we've got a great blog uh, that our team here has launched as well on our website. So absolutely plenty of spots where you can find out the latest on what's happening. Very nice. It's really been a pleasure to talk with you, Chris, uh, someone I've wanted to talk to on the podcast for a while. So thank you for taking the time to join us on the Weather Geeks podcast. Absolutely. appreciate uh, the opportunity again, Marshall. And certainly a, a lot of the things that you've written about um, in, in, you know, in the recent years, um, these are problems that have been well highlighted and that we're excited to solve. Well, good luck with that. And we'll, we'll be watching closely. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. And we'll see you next time.